Packers Daily with Jason Mertides. And welcome to your Wednesday, October 28th edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Martinez. Uh, real quick note, before we get to uh, my 40-plus minute interview with Eddie Olchuk, man, is there a lot in this interview, and I had a blast talking to him, you'll hear it in a second. Do want to tell you that in coming up in a couple, in the next couple of episodes of Flyers Daily, we've got some great stuff planned for you. How about uh, in the next couple of days and in the next subsequent episodes, in no particular order, we're going to be talking with... Linus Sandin from Sweden, who is already back playing and could be playing for the Flyers when they pick up the season coming up in 2021. Could be one of those bottom six forwards to fill a hole uh, that the Flyers uh, created by not signing Derek Grant, Nate Thompson. See if Linus Sandin is part of the future. We'll talk to him coming up in a future episode, one of the next three. Also going to talk to Another guy hoping to step in with the Flyers when the NHL picks back up. How about Morgan Frost coming up in one of the next couple of episodes? And also, Morgan Frost, head coach for much of the season last year. Flyers interim coach the year before. Scott Gordon's going to join us as well. We'll talk to Scott about uh, the, some of the players knocking on the door, like Morgan Frost, and some of the other players, the experience of heading back to the AHL what the plans are for the AHL this year, really up in the air, uh, how Scott Gordon is handling that element of it as well. But right now, let's get to my conversation with uh, a very inspirational man. Went through a tough battle, came out on the other side. Here's my conversation with Eddie Olchuk. Our next guest here on Flyers Daily is a veteran of over 1,000 NHL games. He was a coach. Uh, He's an author. He is a broadcaster. He's a cancer survivor, an inspiration to many a father and a good man, and also a horse racing enthusiast. Eddie Olchek <laughs> joins us right now. How you doing, Edzo? I'm fine, Jay. Uh, listen, uh, what was he? you saved the best for last there when it came to the horse racing part here? We're right. Uh, we're, sh- we're a couple of weeks away from the Breeders' Cup, which is going to be really exciting. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, good to be with you. I hope you're uh, safe and healthy, and hopefully we'll get a chance to be in a ring sooner than later and uh, cross paths and uh, hoping everybody is uh, staying safe, uh, whoever's listening to us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well said. Um, I, I want to start here with you. I have so much I want to talk to you about because it's so interesting that all the different angles and a lot of uh, what I alluded to there kind of in the introduction. But uh, last week uh, kind of shocked a lot of people in the hockey world that uh, Mike Doc Emmerich decided to hang up the headphones. And you've been working with Doc for a while now. You got yeah. into broadcasting back in 06 uh, as the uh, analyst for the Chicago Blackhawks network. Uh, but you've been working with Doc. What was it like working with Doc Emmer? He's a legend of sports broadcasting at this point. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like working alongside him? Well, yeah, you're right. I worked with Doc for uh, for 14 years, uh, being his partner uh, on NBC. And uh, just to take people back, uh, you know, I got that opportunity um, when John Davidson, who uh, I believe to this day is the best hockey analyst that, uh, that I've ever heard. And, and JD left the booth who, and he was sitting next to doc to go become the president of the uh, St. Louis blues. And our boss at NBC, Sam flood, uh, obviously talked to doc and then he made a phone call to me and I had been on with NBC only about seven or eight months. Uh, I was working some studio for them and they had, uh, you know, needed somebody to sit next to doc and, uh, they asked me if I'd be interested and, you know, I had done some color prior to that. I was doing the local games in, in Pittsburgh with the Penguins back in 2003. And then, uh, I got into the coaching aspect of it and, uh, and then I took over for, for JD. So it was a very 
Jason, it was a very intimidating chair to sit in. Sure. And then uh, to know that I'm sitting next to a guy that uh, I had obviously, you know, had a relationship with because Doc being a play-by-play man and me, you know, being a former player and coach, I'd have dialogue with Doc. So we, we had a, you know, we had a relationship, but nothing like that. And uh, to get that chance and to be with him on hockey's biggest stage, over the course of the last 14 years and really every venue across the world, whether it was the NHL or the Olympics, uh, uh, was a great pleasure and uh, an education and uh, something I'll cherish the rest of my life to have been Doc's partner for the last 14 years and to have been his last partner, uh, which is kind of sad to say and was a little disappointed. And, you know, look, at I, you know, I have been asked this question a million times since Doc announced it, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't surprised. I kind of knew it was around the corner. I just didn't realize the corner was going to be, you know, less than, uh, you know, less than eight or nine days ago when Doc gave me the heads up and, and said he was going to ride off into the sunset. So it's been, uh, it's just been a great honor to be his uh, partner and to uh, have that relationship and build up that chemistry and that trust and uh, something I'll, uh, I'll cherish the rest of my life. With with how good he was as a play-by-play man, I, I still look at him as, I think, the most important element of Doc. His preparation was second to none, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that a man of his stature in the business it was as gentle, is as gentlemanly and nice a man as you'll ever meet yeah, in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he has that incredible ability, Jason, does he not, that, uh, you know, he makes you feel good about uh, the conversation you just had or the dialogue you happen to be in on uh, doc is he just has that incredible ability and you know something that uh, i certainly strive for when i communicate with people or talk to somebody for the first time or have a relationship with and and uh, to see that um, up close uh, as i did for 14 years whether it was pre-game meetings with the coach uh, pre-game meetings with the players uh, you know, being in a press box, uh, being in the booth and how many hundreds and thousands of people that would come into the booth and, and, uh, and be looking for doc to say, you know, Hey, or just a hello, or, um, so he just, uh, you're right. I mean, just an incredible individual, not only on the air, but you know, in the big picture, really off the air and then who we saw and heard on the air is who doc Emmerich is. Uh, off the air and uh, that's why he's going to go down as uh, as one of the greatest of all time not only in the game of hockey but uh, his ability to storytelling game and and I think the one thing that we tried out right away or we figured out right away Jason is that you know our our philosophy was very the same Doc and I uh, is that we were there to tell the story not be the story yeah and we would always dissect uh, our work after uh, you know, what, what did we like? What didn't we like? How could we handle this situation better? You know, how come we didn't get this story in, um, replay sequence, uh, you know, promo reads all, and all that. And that's why doc has been able to do what he's done for a long time is, you know, he, he always strived for the perfect game. He had a few perfect games in his career. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, I think that's what took, took our broadcast and our, chemistry and cadence to another level is that you know we took great pride in in uh, in helping sell the game uh promote the game uh passion for the game 
and Doc certainly was the captain of that ship for uh, the last 14 years. Yeah, honest self-evaluation oftentimes is the most important thing, not only as a broadcaster, as a player as well. Sure. Uh, when did you know you were good as a broadcaster? Because you, you, know, you, were, you were a good player growing up, you know, an elite athlete. And you know you're good and you have a lot of control as a player because you can work hard and, you know, there, there's elements of control in broadcasting. There's not as much control per se, but when did you feel validated as a broadcaster? Well, I started preparing for life after hockey probably the last three or four years of my career. So the late 90s, Jason, where I wasn't partaking in the playoffs wherever I was playing, whether it was, uh, you know, in Winnipeg or when I got to Chicago at the end of my career. Um, so I started doing games uh, while being an active player, almost like uh, just use uh, AJ Pierzynski as an example for baseball fans. He does, he had been doing baseball uh, uh, in the playoffs uh, while he was an active player. And, um, you know, it got me into the direction like, wow, this might be a way to, to have a career after hockey and stay um, in the game. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I retired in 2000. I did the commuter between Chicago and Pittsburgh for three years when I became the local broadcaster, as I mentioned, in Pittsburgh for the Penguins for three years. And, and uh, really, you know, I just I just really enjoyed uh, that part of it and, and still do the aspect to entertain, but also instruct and, you know, to try to be one step ahead of everybody else, or at least to take people inside. Like it, it's the obvious when you can see what happens. Well, why did it happen? Was there something that happened 10 seconds prior to that? Was there something that happened, you know, uh, you know, during the play? And, and that's how I try to separate myself. But you know, look at, I've been, uh, I must have a good agent because I've been able to work with uh, Mike Lang, the legendary voice of the Pittsburgh Penguins, yeah. work with Pat Foley, legendary uh, voice of the Chicago Blackhawks, and work with Doc Emmerich, the legendary voice of hockey for the last 50 years. And oh, by the way, uh, they're all Hockey Hall of Famers. So um, I may be smarter than I look. I'm able to hitch, hitch my, uh, you talked about horse racing earlier, I, I've been able to hook my saddle on to uh, some Hall of Famers and uh, and carry around my big backside for the last, uh, you know, on and off 20 years of broadcasting. But uh, it's, it is about the camaraderie and the relationship uh, of the people that I've worked with, which is held past the time. It's gone way too fast. And there's just a great respect with all three gentlemen that I've worked at at different times. And uh, it just has really helped me as a person, as a broadcaster. And you love, I love going to the rink every night and sitting in the booth. Now, obviously we haven't been able to sit in the booth for a long time because of the, the pandemic, but um, there's just that, uh, that appreciation and love of going to work, loving what you do, but even more so loving the people that you work with. And uh, I've been pretty blessed to, to have those three partners consistently over the course of, you know, the last 20 years. That's so well said. Uh, you played in the Quebec Peewee tournament as a kid. Yeah. You won it. You had a pretty good team and you beat a pretty good team to win it. Um, such a prestigious tournament. Uh, but you were put in one of the most difficult spots, Edzo, I, I think, in the history of sport. You were on the 1984 Team USA Olympic team in Sarajevo <laughs> after 1980. Yeah. Um, heading into that, those expectations after yeah. what happened with the Miracle on Ice in 80 had to be so incredible how, how do you compartmentalize that out and try and go and take care of business yeah 
Well, full disclosure, uh, I was uh, 12 years old when I was listening and watching what, what was happening in 1980. And as being as a young aspiring hockey player and seeing uh, USA uh, developed and born and bred hockey players doing the unthinkable, I'm like, oh, man, I would love to be a part of that someday. Yeah. I thought maybe when I was old, you know, like maybe when I was 20 or 24 or whatever. And next thing you know, I get an invitation four years later as a 16 year old to try out for the 1984 U S Olympic men's hockey team in the summer of 1983. And, uh, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was an incredible experience, uh, to be named to the team in the summer, actually on July the 4th of 83, oddly enough, I got named wow. to the team and then made the team full time and then played in the Olympics in, in February of, of, of 84 as a 17 year old. But, um, you're right. Uh, we were in a situation where everybody knew who we were. Everybody was ready to take on the big, bad Americans in the Olympics in Sarajevo in 1984. Um, I look at, I, I mean, I, maybe I was just too young to, to, and too naive and to, to let that pressure get to me. I mean, I was one of a handful of young, young players on that team, whether it was Pat LaFontaine or Ally Afraidy or, David A. Jensen, uh, you know, Chris Chelios was on that team. Chelly was a little bit older. He was in his early 20s. But um, unfortunately for us, our best players were our young players in that tournament. And, uh, you know, that kind of hurt us, you know, at the end. But you're right. I mean, we, we could only equal uh, what that 1980 Miracle and Ice team did. And every place we went into, Jason, over the course of our season from August until we left for the Olympics in February, Every city we went into, every rink we went into, there was a, you know, a party, a parade and meet the mayor and meet the governor. I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a circus and look, it was great for hockey. Don't get me wrong. Oh like, yeah. It was, it was great because of the attention because everybody was like, oh, here comes a, you know, the U S men's Olympic hockey team. And when everybody ever hears that, the first thing that most people think of is, wow, the 1980 team. Right. And uh, but it was, you know, it was a great experience. I would never trade it in for anything. It helped prepare me for 16 years in the NHL. And, uh, but you're right. I mean, we could only equal what the team did in 1980 and, uh, it was never going to be good enough, but I would never trade in that experience or trade in for what the 80 team did for American born hockey players like myself, because they opened up a boatload of doors to, uh, to the NHL and the recognition of or recognizing that, Hey, you know what, those American born kids can play hockey. And now you look at the numbers in the national hockey league, the greatest league in the world. And, you know, us, us, us uh, born and bred Americans the red, white, and blue, we're doing pretty damn good in, in the NHL now, considering, I think the last time I looked, it was, I think it was just over last year rosters. Uh, I think it was over 30 some percent, 32, 33% of the league uh, was, uh, you know, NHL players uh, on rosters in the national hockey league. And it's come a long, long way since the early eighties. And we owe we owe a lot to that 1980 miracle on ice team. You're so right. You, you look at not this, this year's draft, but the one prior the NTDP yeah. in that first round and flyers took Cam York from the NTDP program, of course, Cole Caulfield and the Hughes yeah. brought uh, just incredible. The, the growth of hockey with USA hockey. And I know you're a part of that as well. Uh, the trickle down effect, no bigger trickle down effect, I think, Edzo, with USA hockey. The NTDP is obviously enormous, but the women's game yeah. is the growth in women's hockey is stunning yeah. to me. I'm at the rink all the time, and 
there's girls teams of all levels. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, the game is really in a good place. I still think that there is, uh, some work to do when you talk about the incredible impact that the, the NHL and the understanding how important uh, the grassroots are, especially here in the, in the U S uh, of uh, funneling money from the NHL and its teams to USA hockey and getting it into the right areas. Now uh, I would like to see that money be uh, allocated maybe in some different areas in different ways. Uh, like to see the NHL take, uh, you know, more action, a little bit more initiative than allowing USA hockey to do what they want and how they distribute it. But that's probably for another show or another day, but um, it, it really is important. And you're right. You're seeing it in, uh, in, in all different spectrums uh, at all different age levels, whether it is beginning uh, boys and girls, uh, whether it is in, uh, you know, allowing certain facilities to be able to be run in certain areas, uh, just opportunity, more opportunity for more uh, boys and girls of all demographics to be able to play the greatest game in the world. And uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it really is. So, you, you know, you talk about girls and women's hockey. I mean, just the amount of teams and leagues and, you know, now college hockey, finally, of, you know, you having, you know, 30, 40, 50 programs that have some sort of, uh, of women's hockey at, uh, at the collegiate level. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible because they're, they're one point and I have young, you know, I have children or, you know, now they're, you know, now they're adults, but I mean, I had them, you know, playing hockey, my three boys and, you know, back going back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I mean, there was not a lot of strictly, uh, you know, girls and women's leagues, the girls would have to play with the boys and, and then eventually at some point they would get to an age and then they would only have the, you know, the, the 17 and under or the 14 and under teens. So when they were young girls or, or, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, there really was no avenue for them to just strictly play with girls. And, and now it's everywhere, like you say, and it's just, uh, it's a credit to the game. It's a credit to the league. It's a credit to USA hockey and more opportunity uh, for more people to play the greatest game in the world. So you're right. It's uh it's booming and uh, hopefully it will continue to in, in all areas and all demographics. And, you know, like I, I just know in Chicago, what the Wirtz family has done with uh, helping the local hockey uh, community with rinks and, and helping in all areas. I know it's no different in Philadelphia, uh, you know, with, with, with the, with late, with the late Mr. Snyder uh, yeah. doing what he did in the community in Philadelphia and, and, and now uh, Brian Roberts and Comcast and the Flyers. And I know what they've done in the, in the suburbs in the city of Philadelphia. So, you know, that, that's just two teams of, you know, of 30 that, uh, you know, or 29 that, that are able to, to hopefully give back and continue to give back to the community and, and uh, make the game available for everybody that uh, wants to play it. Because look, the fact is, is hockey is an expensive sport. I mean, there, there's, there's no way around it. I mean, when you talk about ice time, just for an hour of ice, uh, you know, you're talking 300, 350, $400 an hour. Um, And that ends up, where does that end up going? It goes to the consumer. Well, the consumer is the hockey parents. And 
So all of a sudden playing on a team costs a little bit more than it probably would be if you're playing, you know, baseball or soccer or football. And so there's another area again, Jason, I know I'm kind of long winded here, but you know, those are the areas where we, you know, we, we as a hockey community need to figure out how can we lower the costs um, for hockey parents, because at the end of the day, and that's, we're not even talking about the worldwide pandemic that we're living under or in um, parents or caretakers or people looking after people that are playing hockey, boys and girls, they sit there and go, well, geez, you know, it's 3000 to play hockey for the year. And it's $450 to play soccer or another sport. And you're in tough times and people are looking at it at the end of the day, it becomes a financial, you know, decision. And, and that's just the way that it is. You know, we have to do as a hockey community, we have to figure out how we can lower the cost to allow more people the opportunity to play. Yeah, let's lower the cost of sticks first. Uh, <laughs> there ain't the old PMPG uh, 50, 30 Sherwoods anymore. Yeah, $300 exactly. for a twig. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why, that's why, uh, you know, every once in a while I'll drop in the, uh, the phrase, uh, uh, you know, referring to hockey sticks is that wood is good. You know, there's nothing wrong with a good wood stick. And uh, that's the way that I grew up. And obviously we're not going back. I know the equipment has, is certainly much more advanced and changed. I would beg to argue that it's, you know, it's better for the player or certain players. There are some guys that should not be using the $300 hockey stick. And I'm mm -hmm. talking at the NHL level. I'm not talking about yeah. some Bantam or midget hockey player, boy or girl, uh, using a $300 stick. Um, it is about feel. It is about receiving passes. It is about making passes. It's just not on how light it is or how hard you shoot the puck, but I agree with you a thousand percent. You're, uh, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm, uh, I'm a big advocate of, of wood sticks and it's hard to find. And I believe I want, I believe is that Paul Stastny now with the Winnipeg Jets for a second tour of duty, um, I think he was the last player. If it wasn't him, it was Jason Spezza. I believe one of those two guys were the last ones in uh, NHL history uh, to use a uh, to use actually a whole wood stick uh, in in playing the National Hockey League. Wow, that, that's going to be a great trivia question. Yeah, at some uh, point, at some yeah. point, yeah. And everybody's using the, the composite now. Um, Edzo, you have um, inspired a lot of people. And another reason why I wanted to get you on and talk to you is because you actually helped me because my mom was going through cancer. We unfortunately lost her in January. Mm -hmm. uh, but as she was going through it and she would have days where she was down, uh, I read your book. I read the book, uh, Eddie Elchek, Beating the Odds in Hockey and in Life. And you tell the story uh, about how you broke down and you didn't want to fight anymore. And you talk about how you, you, you know, you, you balled it out for 30 minutes with your wife, Diana, and then you kind of approached it like a hockey game, one shift at a time, one period at a time, one game at a time. And I had that talk and I referred to your book in talking to my mom. Um, I think your books helped a lot of people with early detection. I think your book has uh, really kind of peeled back the curtain on, on what it's like to go through what you went through. What was it like to write that story? Well, I appreciate that, Jason. I'm sorry uh, about your loss of, of your mom. And, and uh, I hope, uh, and you kind of alluded to it, and I appreciate it. I'm very, I'm very proud of the book. I'm very proud of uh, the goal of the book was to help one person or help one family uh, either get through the battle, help them get through the day, or just, you know, uh, see them through. And I think for me, um, 
you know, I thought I was a relatively healthy guy. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, I had a colonoscopy set up. It was probably a little later than it should have been, but I was still 50 years of age. It was set up. And next thing you know, I wake up one day and I can't go to the bathroom. I can't go number two. And then all of a sudden I'm having a, having a six and a half hour surgery, removing a tumor the size of my fist and telling me that I had stage three colon cancer. And I'm like, wow what the, like, you know, what the hell just happened? And look at, for me, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't go to the bathroom. And, and that was the sign that I got. Now, were there any other signs prior to that? I mean, I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know that, you know, you, you should, you know, look at it's These are hard conversations to have. And sometimes people don't want to hear it, but it's like, okay, well, I mean, the doctors asked me, well, did you ever notice any blood in your stool? Like when you went number two, did you ever notice? And I just said, Hey, look, I like it. I just, I did what I did. I used a toilet paper. I flushed the toilet and I walked out. I mean, I never knew yeah. nobody ever told me that, um, you know, that I should look in the bowl every once in a while, because maybe there could have been a, a sign. Maybe there was blood yeah. in there. And so again, I mean, th these are the things where it, it could have helped save me to stay away from the chemo. Maybe, it, maybe I could have got it, you know, uh, noticed it because I asked the question, Jason, I said, you know, I said, how long has this been thing been growing? I mean, how long has it been inside me? And she said that my doctor, Mary Mulcahy, uh, who's the lead oncologist at Northwestern Hospital here in Chicago, and, and Dr. Mulcahy said, well, it's probably a pretty good chance. It's probably been growing for seven to 10 years. And I'm like, wow. well, okay. Like if I would have seen this seven years ago, what would have happened? I said, well, we probably would have got in there, cleaned you up, and then you probably would have went on with living your life and instead of having to go through a six and a half hour surgery and reconnecting all the plumbing and, and everything on the inside and then going through six months of chemo. So again, I, you know, for me, the, the goal of the book, like I said, was to help one person and it's either to early detection, whether it's to help them get through the day and to be very transparent. Uh, it was the one thing that I really has been um, probably the most um, beneficial and the most uh, pleasing about writing the book. And you touched on it, um, Jason, is that, uh, you know, the honesty that, uh, that, that I, I spoke about when it came to, you know, being ill, uh, being sick and just telling people, look at, yeah, th there was a point, there was a point during my second treatment where, the side effects brought me to my knees and they were, you know, the side effects were brutal. I mean, I would just vomit. Uh, I had nosebleeds. I had terrible headaches. I had neuropathy, neuropathy going on. And oh, by the way, I would just go to the bathroom number two without even, even being able to control it. And that was only my treatment too. And, you know, my wife was with me every step of the way. And, and uh, I was like, how am I going to get through this treatment? two and I got another 10 to go like how, yeah. how there's no way and it's I just unbearable I, yeah I, I did I did I told my wife I'm done I quit I can't live like this I'm just gonna look at no other way to say it I mean I'm just gonna shit the floor anytime I'm gonna have to live like that I'm like I'm done I quit yeah you feel like your dignity's I, gone yeah and I mean I I had I was taking 48 hours of chemo I would take four hours at the hospital of one chemo and then they would send me home for 48 hours and I had a pump I had a port in my chest and the machine would go off every 90 seconds and the sound I'll never forget the rest of my life. It would just, it was just like a spray machine. It just went 
every 90 seconds, I would hear this machine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm sitting in my basement right now talking to you, Jason. And, and this is where pretty much I lived for, you know, for, for the six months is I just came down here and lived 15 hours a day and I'd be by myself and I would hear this for 40 straight, 48 straight hours, that sound. And, and during treatment too, I just told my wife, I quit. I'm done. I'm, I, I can't. And if, if my wife wasn't around at that time, I, I, I would have bailed. I, I would have quit. I just was like, I can't, you know, there's no cliff notes version for this, you know, and I wanted to yeah. get to the 12th treatment. And, and I told my wife, as you alluded to, I just said, you know what, I quit. And my wife looked at me and, uh, and grabbed me. And uh, she gave me the greatest inspirational speech that I ever, I heard. And I've been in a lot of locker rooms and I've read a lot of books and I've heard a lot of the stories, but me individually, this was the one that resonated the most and she just looked grabbed me and looked at me in the eyes and just said look you got to fight you got to fight for me you got to fight for our kids we have four kids and she says you got to fight for us and you got to fight for all the people that love you and we cried uh we had a moment that lasted you know i cried for 30 minutes and the moment lasted 35 and and uh i'm like okay and as you said i just was like okay i'm just gonna look at tonight and then when I go to bed and I wake up uh, I'm going to look at tomorrow and I'm not going to worry about anything else other than what's right in front of me and I did I referred to my hockey playing days I put my hockey helmet on and and uh and I battled and 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 I'm hoping with the honesty and transparency as you mentioned that I talked about is something that people can relate to whether it is the person in the battle or the person that's going to be in the battle that they don't know or somebody that is a caretaker or caregiver or a loved one or a, uh, you know, a child like yourself, you know, caring for your mom. And, and I think that's very relatable. And that was just honest because look, I had never, Jason, I had never given up at anything in my life, uh, yeah. whether it was playing, whether it was coaching, whether it was being at the racetrack and being down 200 bucks. Okay. Scratch that being down 2000. I was never going to quit. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I just, I'd never, that's not part of my DNA, but in this, it just brought me to my knees where I'm just like, I was lost and uh, I needed that from my wife and she got me back on my feet. And I'm proud to say, I just had my four month checkup uh, the other day and I'm, uh, I'm two plus years clean and clear of cancer and, and, and that's the plan right now is to stay on the right side of the sod for, for, for the next little while. So I'm very lucky and blessed. And uh, I hope that people that do either see a part of my book or pick it up and read it is that they can be inspired. And that's what I'm hoping that I can get accomplished to not only with the hockey and horse racing stories, but really the decision to write the book was when I got sick, because I had the opportunity to think about writing it with Perry Lefko, who's a friend of mine and lives up in Toronto and was a big horse racing and hockey guy. And, and uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, people can be inspired. And if that indeed is the case, then it was well worth the uh, 16 months of pen to paper to uh, to write this book. Well, I, the one thing, too, that I really took away from it is that, you know, I look at the game. It's been a part of my life since I've been four years old. My parents put me in the game and I thank God that they did. My, my yeah. two of my kids, my daughter plays, my son plays, and I'm still playing in beer league like an idiot. Um, <laughs> but. The, the game prepared you for that. Um, so let me ask you this. What does the game of hockey, what has the game of hockey meant to your life? Well, it's been everything, really. Uh, you know, you're, you're no different. I mean, I got introduced to it when I was six and a half years old, where I just happened to bring 
uh, a flyer home from school. So uh, for some of our younger listeners, uh, I will take you back. Uh, you didn't get an email. You didn't get a text <laughs> on meetings and special lunches and, you know, we, the, you know, the, you know, whatever was going on, the PTA or whatever. No, the, the, it, back in the day, you would actually get physically handed pieces of paper for, you know, fill out this for if you want to go on a field trip, fill out this if you want to, you know, be a part of the after school activities. Uh, oh, by the way, here's a flyer where they have a learn to skate program in the suburbs of Chicago and Niles, Illinois, that if you're interested in playing, you know, learning to skate and playing the game of hockey, you know, why don't you, you know, why don't you come on this day? And that's how I got introduced to, to getting on the ice and, and playing the game of hockey. And, uh, you know, could easily thrown that piece of paper in the garbage, Jason, and, and never got introduced to the game of hockey because my dad was not, my dad was a football player and my mom played baseball and stuff, but it, no hockey anywhere. And it just happened. And once I put on the skates and, you know, floundered around there for the first couple of, you know, elements of uh, learning how to skate, then I got in to learn to play hockey and the rest is history. But, um, it's been, I mean, really, it's been the, the, uh, the, you know, the driving force in my life uh, for everything. Um, I met my wife on an airplane uh, traveling uh, for a hockey game. So, you know, I met my wife through hockey. Uh, all of my boys played hockey. Um, you know, I've got some of my closest friends through the game of hockey. And not only, you know, not only the game, but it's just so many life skills that I learned yep. uh, being able to to you know, communicate with people and play on a team and understand that everybody's got to accept and execute their role on a team. And um, I've just been so lucky at every level and not, not only at the highest level, but you know, I, I mean, I miss those days of, you know, going on hockey trips uh, with my kids as a hockey parent and yeah. missed them as a kid. And, um, but I, I just, uh, hockey has been a part of my life and it always will be, and, and very proud to have been a part of it, and worn many, many different hats. At, uh, you know, in the game of hockey, and uh, like I said, uh, hopefully when people, you know, hear my name or hear my story, is that they know that hey, you know, that that guy's whole life has been involved in the game of hockey. Yeah, and it's uh, benefited greatly the game and uh, for yourself. Your son Tommy, of course, played at Penn State uh, where yeah, I went. Yeah, so yeah. great, great to see that. Uh, as the last thing for you, just you just referred to, I've worn a lot of hats. Uh, your name has come up uh, in regard to another hat uh, a few times lately, and that's been uh, potential GM opportunities. Is is that a hat you'd like to check that box for? <laughs> Especially in a flat cap world right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. luck, right? Yeah. Um... You know, look, I, I've been very, very, uh, been very lucky, uh, to be able to do and, and, uh, and work with the people that I do, um, you know, to this point in my career, I, I love being a broadcaster. I love the opportunity for the people that I work with. Like I mentioned, you know, working with doc and working with Pat Foley, doing the Blackhawk games here in Chicago locally, and then doing the national games. Um, I've been really thrilled and honored and humbled Jason that, uh, you know, I've had a few teams contact me for uh, a couple of different roles uh, within organizations and, and nothing has um, nothing has materialized. Obviously, um, there have been a couple where we got down to the short strokes and I thought that there was a pretty good chance that maybe uh, the opportunity or decision would have to be made. Um, but to this point, it hasn't. Uh, is it something that I'm looking uh, looking around and looking for? No. Um, I think people 
and there's very, very, um, there are very few people that um, know kind of my aspirations over the course of the last handful of years and people that I confide in and, and, uh, and trust uh, on the guidance in, in certain situations. Uh, and one great uh, friend of mine is, is the legendary Paul Holmgren, who all Flyer fans know. Uh, Homer has been a, uh, a great resource for Eddie Olchek and his family. Uh, he was a great supporter of mine over the years in USA Hockey. Um, and then when I got sick a couple of years ago, Homer was there every step of the way and supporting me and my family and something that I will, will never forget. But Homer and I have had many, many conversations because he has worn many hats at the National Hockey League level. So, um, you know, I rely on people that have been around the game and, and do it in a way, uh, Jason, where it's, uh, I don't want to say it's underground, but pretty darn close. I don't like the, uh, the attention or limelight or the lobbying, you know, publicly. I, I don't think that that really works. Like sometimes, you know, things get out and you can't control that. But, uh, you know, look at, I love what I do. I uh, would never say never, um, but uh, we'll just, uh, we'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, if I get the opportunity, then we'll have to make a decision. But uh, I'm very thankful and, and lucky that I've had a couple of opportunities to be meeting with high ranking people on a lot of different levels with a couple of different teams in the National Hockey League and, uh, and think I'm a better broadcaster and a better hockey guy for having gone through some of the uh, interviews and the meetings that I've had with certain people throughout the league. Well, we'll see if that is, in fact, uh, part of your fate. Uh, your story is amazing, Edzo. Um, it's inspirational. Uh, do you have any Breeders' Cup picks? I know the people are going to want a good pick. They want to cash will, them on your... Will, yeah, I will say this. Yeah, I'm, and I am getting ready to head out to a Breeders' Cup in a couple of weeks. Uh, the first uh, full weekend of November, I'll be in Lexington, Kentucky for the Breeders' Cup on NBC. And um, I would give people in the, in the Breeders' Cup turf sprint which is going to be five and a half furlongs, which will be run on Saturday, I believe Saturday, the seventh, uh, one horse that I'm zeroing in on, I think will be every bit of uh, 12 to 15 to one is a horse by the name of extravagant kid uh, who I think will be a real good value play. Do I think the horse can win? Well, I'm sure hoping so. Um, <laughs> but I think using in exactas or trifectas, uh, I think you'd be foolish to leave, extravagant kid off of your tickets if you're looking to play some exactas or trifectas or superfectas so we'll see if the horse gets in i think the horse is going to get into the breeders cup turf sprint um but i would say don't don't turn the page on extravagant kid and uh, if extravagant kid can hit the board and you can find the other numbers uh you're going to get paid because i like the sound of 12 or 15 to 1 Nice. Uh, Edzo, we're hoping to see you back in a hockey rink very soon as well. Hopefully the NHL can uh, kind of get close to that January 1st target date or somewhere uh, around there. Uh, best of luck. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely talk soon. Jay, thanks for having me. And uh, I just want to let people know really quick. I don't know if they know this, but because uh, uh, we are so talking to, uh, I would assume, uh, a, a certain demographic uh, in, in Philadelphia. Um, yep. When I was a kid, uh, I became infatuated with Bobby Clark. Uh, Cl Bobby Clark was my favorite player. Uh, I didn't play anything, anything like Bobby Clark, except maybe <laughs> in the face-off dot, because I thought I was a pretty darn good face-off man and always watched uh, how, how uh, Mr. Clark would, uh, would uh, take face-offs and, and knew his battle, obviously, off the ice, uh, you know, being a diabetic and what have you. But uh, it's the reason why I wore number 16, 
Uh, I was a, a big Flyers fan growing up. The Blackhawks were my favorite team, but I love the Flyers and I love uh, Bobby Clark. Um, but there is a hockey card out there that uh, back in the day when I was playing in Winnipeg, it was called an Idols card. And the picture, I think it's like, the, to me, I mean, selfishly, I think it's the greatest hockey card out there. Um, <laughs> they would have they would have the current player, which was me back in the early nineties, I believe playing for Winnipeg. And then in the background, it had your idol in the background in a black and white. So it's a picture of me in a Winnipeg Jets uniform. I see and it. then there was a black and there was a black and white color, uh, a black and white picture of your idol. And it happened to be Bobby Clark in behind. And uh, I, like, to me, it's my favorite hockey card ever. And, I believe at that time, uh, Mr. Clark was in Florida and he was running the Panthers Panthers, or he was GM or, you know, something like that. And I remember I'm like, geez, I wonder if he would sign these cards for me. So I just brought him with me on the road and I happened to run into Mr. Clark, you know, somewhere in the old arena there in Florida in downtown Miami. And Clark, he couldn't have been nicer. And I don't think he realized that, you know, he made, you know, that he, that I was, uh, that he was my idol and Clark, he signed seven of, I asked him to sign seven of the cards. So I actually have the seven cards at my home and something that, uh, that I'm, I'm very, very treasured, very treasured within the old check family and, and appreciative that uh, my idol would sign those cards and uh, something that, uh, you know, one of those little stories and things I'll never forget is that he took the time out and, uh, and, uh, and was Eddie Olchek's favorite player. I'm looking at the card now. It was 1991, yeah. the Pinnacle Collection, and yeah, you're yeah, there, yeah. and and Clarky's there in the background. Yeah. Toothless. All, as always. All, I will say this: <laughs> I know there are no cards. I know there are no cards out there that have both of our signatures on them. That I know for sure because I have the seven. <laughs> yeah, well, I see one here with just your signature on it. That's uh, uh, for sale right now on one of the website, the memorabilia sites. I would, I would check. I would check though. I would check if, if that card was actually signed by Eddie Olchek, I would actually check that out. I don't know that it's, uh, that that would be legit because that was whenever I see that card, I give it the old Heisman there. I'm like, I don't know if I want to sign that one. (laughs) Awesome stuff. That's, that's tremendous. Um, Eddie, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Be well to you and your family and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Stay safe, Jason. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Daddy Olchek, for joining us here on this episode of Flyers Daily. Um, if you haven't read his book, I highly recommend it. Um, so many people have been touched by cancer, and his book uh, gives you tremendous insight on what it's like to go through that battle. Um, tremendous job writing the book, very transparent. So I highly recommend uh, you go pick that up at uh, Amazon or your local bookstore, wherever you buy your books. Uh, Coming up, remember, the next couple of episodes, Lena Sandin, Scott Gordon, Coach of the Phantoms, and Morgan Frost will come up as well. Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily, and we'll catch you on Friday's brand new episode. I'm in the sky.